Soren Kierkegaard spoke of the love of God, speaking about the way in which we say, you know, we love him because he first loved us, which is true. The statement he went on to make was that we tend to think of that as history, as past tense. And it is. He did love us. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But the statement that we love because he first loved us, it's not just to be understood in the past tense. It's not just to be understood as history. He loved you first today. Any moment that you wake up and express your love to him, in that moment, it's because he loved you first. At this present moment right now, we preach the word and hear the word and seek to be transformed by the word of God, which is given to us because of his love, because he loved us first, not just in the past, but even now. And friend, his love for you is unlike any other love. It is a perfect love. So wide, so deep, so long, so high. A love so beautifully expressed in that hymn and so beautifully expressed from the beginning of his word to the end. He loves you. And you love him too because he first loved you. Not just in the past, but even now. I didn't prepare those remarks for today's sermon but I'm just overwhelmed by that reality. And the means of grace that God gives us, his word, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship, reminds us that he is alive and that he's inside of us. And he's seeking to use us as ministers of reconciliation in this world that is so dark and desperate need of Christ's saving grace, his person and his work. All over the city of Dallas today, pastors are preaching from Micah 6, 1 through 8. Given the realities of the world that we are living in, the darkness of these days, the clergy group that I'm a part of in Dallas agreed to preach on Micah 6, 8 today. And it's an incredible kingdom passage because we have an incredible king that has given us an incredible calling. A lot is happening in our city with the desire to see believers be salt and light, to truly recognize the power of the transforming presence of Christ and his kingdom, to be engaged in all forms, all forms of our city that we might truly reflect the power and love of the living God. To understand more about this, you could go to onedallasmovement.org just to see some things that are beginning to take place. It's early in its formation. But along with other pastors today, we come to this text. 
And before I read the passage, I want to make a statement that's really important to understand. Micah 6.8 is an incredible verse that speaks of action. I'll read this one verse first, and then I'm going to read the context. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It is a powerful, eloquent, clear call that can be put on a t-shirt or on a sign in the yard or easily imprinted on our memory. But if it's taken out of its context, it actually becomes really dangerous. Let me pray, and then we're going to read chapter 6, 1 through 8, and I'll explain more what I mean by that as then we begin to look at what Micah was really saying. Father, as we open this word, we are moved by your love, we're moved by your presence, we're moved by your holiness, we're moved by your transcendence, our eyes are looking further and further into the reality of how huge you are, how powerful you are, your sovereignty. But we also recognize your intimacy, that you are living in us, that your light is shining through us, that you've called us to yourself and you've called us to a mission, a mission to extend the transforming presence of Christ into the city and all over the world. It's the same mission that you gave the disciples, and we are your disciples, and so we come eager to love you well, eager to obey you, eager to rest in Jesus alone for our salvation and in the Holy Spirit for the work of sanctification. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. It comes from the minor prophet Micah, seven chapters. Micah follows the perhaps better known book of Jonah. And Micah speaks the word of God. Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we say that, please be seated. I want you to know I really am thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful that it's alive and that it's active, that I have the privilege of serving a church that holds the word of God up high, that you pray for the preached word and you pray for those listening to the preached word, not that it's just information that we receive, but it's transformative truth that leads every time we open it to a dependence upon God in which we seek to be the people that he's called us to be. Not in our flesh, it's impossible, but in his power. That's why taking a verse out of context is really very dangerous. One of my first churches I ever served in was called Heritage Presbyterian Church. It was my introduction into the Presbyterian Church in America. It was a fairly small church and I was the first person ever hired to direct their youth ministry. When I started, there were four high school students and six middle school students. And one of the middle school students was one of the most zealous, devoted, passionate followers of Jesus I'd ever met at that age. So zealous was this individual that once he called me on a Saturday night and said, I wanna share some good news with you. A friend of mine just accepted Christ I said, tell me about what happened. He said, well, he's spending the night. He's here right now. I locked him in my closet, and I told him he couldn't come out until he became a Christian. That's a true story. It gives you a bit of the young man's mindset in terms of his zeal. Later, I remember in high school, he was a phenomenal athlete. I went to watch one of his track meets, and he'd written on his spikes, I can do all things through him who gives me strength boldly written on his spikes, he lost that race. And thus began not just the disappointment in losing, but disappointment in God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then why didn't I win the race? You see, in his young mind of 17 years of age, he had taken a verse that has nothing to do with track that has nothing to do, frankly, with athletics unless you're needing to persevere through trials and suffering. Philippians 4.13 doesn't promise that we can do anything in a way that means what we might want to think it means, that all of our wishes would come true. It means something far different. And so does Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 is a very powerful verse because it's extremely clear. It's really just a summary of the law of the two great commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But here, and this isn't the outline, it's just four concerns I have to start us. Here we must pay attention to the greater context. First of all, if we're not careful, and we hear Micah say, what is it that the Lord requires of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God, that sounds like a task list. And so the temptation, and this is my first concern, is that suddenly we begin to put the focus on ourselves. I am going to do justice. I am going to love kindness, and I'm going to walk humbly with 
my God. And if I do that, therefore, it's what God requires. I'm justifying myself before God. And we are so prone towards acts of self-righteousness. We are prone to come up with a list that says, here's how I'm doing. Compared to others, I'm doing pretty good. Therefore, I justify myself before God. And that is not at all what Micah is saying. Like the law, you'll see quickly, not a person can do this perfectly. There's not one among our midst who is doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God perfectly. Only one did, and that was Jesus Christ. So that's the first concern that we have to pay attention to. The second is this, that we can, te- uh, we can take a passage like this and treat it merely as aspirational, that this would be neat if it would happen. We should aspire to something like this. This is not aspirational. Micah is a prophet proclaiming the word of God. He says this is what is required, not what's aspirational. It's not a neat idea that if the people of the city of Dallas would be interested in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God, that'd be a wonderful thing for our city. It's not aspirational. It's the inspired word of God. We can't treat it as aspirational. Thirdly, and this in some ways comes out of the aspirational, we might treat it as optional. That this ministry of justice and mercy and walking humbly with God is for those who have a burden for that type of ministry. This is for all of God's people. It moves actually from the corporate speaking of the nation to the individual. To you, O man, what does the Lord require of you? It's not optional. You cannot leave today or any day saying, you know, that's for that group of Christians. My burden is this. Lastly, and then we're going to move into the whole text. It's easy to look at this and think that the problem is less deep and less dark than it is. It's easy to see above the surface issues of injustice and, and racism and the killing of babies and all forms of injustice because of sin. And when we just look at the surface, we fail to see the big, massive issue of sin underneath the water. We fail to see how deep and how dark the issues of sin and how they manifest themselves in us and against us really are. And if we're missing that, I promise you we're also missing then the power that is necessary and able to meet that deep and dark reality. The solution to all forms of sin and how these raise their head in us and against us and from us, the solution must be deep and have the power to transform. The the power that is divine to transform individuals and systems and structures and even nations. 
a power that is divine that actually gives us the ability in Christ to do what he's requiring. In Christ to do justice. In Christ to love kindness. In Christ to walk humbly with our God. But if we treat this verse out of context, it simply becomes a pithy statement that tempts us to center it on the flesh, invites us just to think of it as aspirational or optional, or helps, or I'm sorry, enables us to just see it at a surface level. God and his word reveals that he is deeply concerned with justice. He's deeply concerned with loving kindness and mercy. He's deeply concerned with his people being a people that are humble. And he gives us this man, Micah. So what I want to do is I want to unpack who Micah was, the context that he was writing in. It takes us into a courtroom that reveals the deep issues at stake. And then it comes to this place of tremendous application and this one verse with a power that we cannot deny. So let's begin. Who was Micah? Micah is a very common name in the Old Testament. It's referenced 14 times. But this Micah is only mentioned twice. Names matter, especially biblical names. And the name that was given to Micah means who is like the Lord. Now, I want you to remember that. Because Micah, near the end of his prophecy, is going to reference that question in fact, in a way, referencing his own name. I'm convinced that questions like that, who is like the Lord, questions like you just heard sung, and can it be, those are the things that center our eyes on the profound transcendence and power of God and his amazing intimacy with his people. The source of what is needed to counter all forms of sin and evil in our world is in him. And Micah's name says a lot. Who is like the Lord? Micah 1.1, if you have your Bible, turn there because I want to show you what it says at the beginning. Micah 1.1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that one verse. I really just want to highlight one thing. The word of the Lord came to Micah. Who are you listening to today? Who will you be listening to tonight and tomorrow? Are you listening to proclaimers of the word of God? What the world needs so desperately from Christians is Christians who are anchored in the Word of God, who are humbly anchored in His Word. Micah is called by God to be a prophet at a very dark time. The context is given in the opening verse. It's in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
He is a contemporary of the more well-known prophet Isaiah. And the time in which he is prophesying is very dark. It's not unlike the time that we're in. This side of heaven, there are seasons of really profound darkness. But Micah is not a man who is speaking his own mind. He is not a man who is giving his opinions. He is giving God's people the very word of God, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Every person who wrote one of the books in the canon, in the scriptures that we hold high, was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Micah, in everything that he writes, everything that he speaks, has been receiving it from the living God. These are the words that God wanted him to speak. The first verse also tells us that this Micah, who's referenced twice in the Bible, is from Morsheth. Now, Morsheth was an agricultural town in the lowlands west of Jerusalem, about halfway to the sea. And what's significant about this town was there were traditional values that were beginning to be undermined, undermined by the decadent rich, those who were seeking to bring oppression from the capital city. Therefore, it was a great place for a reforming prophet to be formed. And that's why the, the issues of justice are so important to Micah. Micah of Moresheth is a prophet who is hearing the word of God. To understand the context of which he is speaking, there are two primary concerns that he and the other prophets have. One is external and the other is internal. And this is almost always true for God's people. The external pressure is the spreading power of the Assyrian Empire. It was the great empire of the day. And they were seeking to overcome and destroy nation after nation, calling then those that they captured to become those who were attacking other people, including their very own. The superpower of its time, Assyria cast a shadow that was far and wide. And whenever there's a shadow that's being cast far and wide, even today, pick your country or pick your leader, whatever you want, when there is a shadow that's being cast that creates fear in people, there is a temptation to no longer anchor yourself in the Word of God, but to anchor yourself in something else or someone else. And that's what was happening over and over again to the people of Israel. As the prophet saw it, the political and military problems were mere symptoms of a greater and deeper problem, which is always the case. The moral and spiritual condition of Jerusalem. This is the internal problem. God's people had turned their heart from the Lord. And the language and the intimacy with which Micah speaks, he's really referencing spiritual adultery, a theme that exists throughout Scripture as God's people time and time again rejected who God was and is and who he called them to be in his holy word. The fruit of their unbelief was rampant. The compromises 
were everywhere. And there you see Micah moving in this prophecy to an indictment. And what's happening here in Micah 6 is taking place essentially in a courtroom because the Lord, who is in covenant with his people, has an indictment to bring against his people because of their internal rebellion against him. So as you listen to these first few verses, and they may sound strange, recognize that the Lord is calling Micah essentially to prosecute, and the Lord is the judge, and it's taking place in a courtroom. Well, who are the witnesses? Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the people, and he will contend with Israel. This is fascinating. Micah is saying, as the Lord is pouring into him, that which he's receiving, he's giving, that we're going to court because the covenant God that you were in covenant relationship with is bringing a covenant suit against you. You have been unfaithful. As our witnesses, it's the mountains. As our witnesses, it's the pillars, the foundations, those things that have always existed, who have witnessed your unfaithfulness. You are guilty. And then the Lord moves with this very intimate and passionate plea, also recognizing what the mountains and the pillars have also witnessed, and that is the faithfulness of God. And he does it in a series of questions beginning in verse 3. Oh, my people, that's very intimate. This is the heart of God. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God had done nothing except reveal to them time and time again that he's good, that he does good. Micah goes on and in two verses does a brief summary of the history of Israel. He brought you out of oppression out of the land of slavery. As he brought you out, he provided leaders in Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He promised to lead you, to be with you, to never forsake you, and he never has, and he always has. He's never forsaken you, but he's always led you. He's always been with you. How have I wearied you? God is asking. How have I done anything wrong? He then goes on and speaks of other enemies coming against them. And then he speaks of two geographical locations, each on the side of the Jordan, one where they left and the other where they arrived, again, showing God's faithfulness. But like the people of Israel, if we fail to remember God's faithfulness, we too grow weary We grow weary when we don't know what's going to happen next. We grow weary when we move to the future in a man-centered way and think of circumstances that are overwhelming. 
God's call here is to remember. If you need help remembering, one, one great place you might go would be Psalm 78. Remember, it's a song, and maybe you need to, over a number of days, just play that song as you read it, Psalm 78, over and over again, and then hit repeat, because there you're going to see time and time again the faithfulness of God towards his people. From there, Micah then moves towards sacrifices. And once again, the people are tempted to think wrongly about what it is that God requires of them. And so Micah uses hyperbole here that begins to escalate. In verse 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Again, the focus is on self. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? What that meant was an expensive sacrifice. A calf could be sacrificed at seven days old. Therefore, a calf that's a year old has required labor and love and resources. He then escalates more. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Again, the hyperbole grows, and then he moves towards, shall I bring my firstborn, which was heinous in terms of what people would do in sacrificing a loved one. Micah goes on to say, this is not what the Lord is requiring. What the Lord requires, O oh man, to you and to me, is to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So finally, we're at this very powerful, very pithy, very clear summary of the law, the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. To do justice means to treat people fairly, to give them what is due to them. A person who does justice treats people right, with integrity, with respect. To do justice is to help someone that you see who is in need. To be an advocate for one whose rights <clears throat> are being violated. The application of justice for believers is that in Christ, when we see something that's not just, we enter in. We're salt and light. When we see that which is not being done fairly, we engage because we seek the heart of God. Loving kindness <clears throat> is one of the most difficult Hebrew words to translate with one word. And that's why in many translations you might see mercy or faithfulness or steadfast love <clears throat> or as in the ESV, loving kindness. Excuse me. Loving kindness <clears throat> usually signifies help provided by a stronger and a weaker voice to a partner that's in a covenant relationship. God is the great example of that act. To love kindness means to give where no giving is required. 
It acts when no action is deserved. And it penetrates both the action and attitude as well as the heart. To love kindness is to look on the weak and vulnerable with the eyes of God's love and give them what they don't deserve. That is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is radical. That is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is far more radical than we believe. Practicing justice is something that one does. In Christ, do justice. But a lover of kindness is something that one is. And being the latter will surely result in doing the former. One in Christ does not help others primarily out of a sense of duty, but because of a genuine desire to help. And this is born out of the last phrase, to walk humbly with our God. This is the greatest requirement. And without this, the others will not last. Without this, the others will not be sustained. Without this, the power that is necessary to bring that transformation that we as believers should long for is impossible. To walk humbly with our God first means that we rest in Him. That we receive Jesus alone for our salvation that when we consider the demands of the law, even in this pithy statement, we recognize we cannot do it. In our flesh, it is impossible for us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. And so we rest and receive in Him alone. And from that humble posture, we're resting in the one who showed justice, mercy, loving kindness, and humility in the most radical way. Micah, in chapter five, is the prophet that points to the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. And Micah, in chapter seven, near the end of his Prophecy, verse 18 says, who is a God like you? Micah's name, who is like the Lord? Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you? Listen to the rest of the verse. Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. Who is a God like the God you and I are worshiping right now? Who is a God like the one who has given us his holy word? Our God is a God who displayed justice, loving kindness, and humility in the most unthinkable ways. They're the greatest act of injustice ever known to man is poured out on Christ Jesus. The only man who was ever perfectly just. The only man who has ever been perfectly full of love and kindness. The only man who has ever 
been perfectly humble. And it was the Lord's will, the Father's will, to offer up his son as a sacrifice. The sacrifice. The perfect lamb. And the greatest act of injustice so that all who would trust in him could live forever in a world that is done with the brokenness, done with the darkness, done with evil, done with sin, this place, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus Christ, as Micah points to him, is our answer to why and how we should be concerned with justice and kindness and humility because he is. And as we have been saved and rescued by him, he calls us to be ministers of reconciliation, seeking to hold out this radical message of good news about the love of God. A love that is unlike any other love. A love that had the living God giving his only son that whoever would trust in him would have everlasting life. The church in Christ has the power that the world needs for every issue of injustice and sin that we know. Our temptation is to do it in the flesh, and if we do, it will fail. Our temptation is to te treat it simply as aspirational. That would be neat one day. Or optional, that's for some. Or to think the issue is just above the surface. Jesus Christ did not come to die for issues that are deep, I'm sorry, just above the surface. He came to die for this problem of sin, which is far deeper and darker than we know. But because of what he did, the power manifesting itself in and through us is far greater and far more capable than we probably believe. And so would you let the question, who is like our God? continue to move through your heart and mind, reminding you of God's faithfulness from beginning and to the end. He loved you first, even today, even right now. From that place in Christ, let's seek to be the people he's called us to be. Lord Jesus Christ, so
so many years before you were born, Micah spoke these very words. The mountains were the witnesses. The pillars, too. The people had forgotten. And we are so like those people, Lord. Thank you for songs that remind us of the truth. Above all, thank you for your holy word, which is always true. Thank you for every verse that we have looked at today and how it just points to our inability, but perfectly to your power. Lord, let this soak deep into us that we would be made different today because of what we've seen and heard in every place that you have called us to be salt and light, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you, our God, in whose name we pray. Amen.